as we go to the Lord now in prayer. And Father, now in the second of three services, again, what we're doing is we're praying that you will work powerfully, powerfully in our midst. In this setting, in the streaming of this message, what will appear online. Lord, all these things we're committing to you. Now, there are going to be various needs that have come under this roof today. It will be viewed online. We find our peace, we find our strength, we find our perspective in the fact that there is a vacancy sign hanging over that grave. It's empty. And Father, all the claims and all the promises of Jesus, before that, all the promises that were found throughout the Old Testament, pointing in the direction of the one who would be raised from the dead, find their yes in Jesus. And I pray that each one here this morning will find their yes in Jesus as well. Making absolutely certain that if we came spiritually curious, but not saved by grace through faith in Christ's finished work, that before we leave, that through your word, the result is going to be on that Faith is placed exclusively in Christ and Him alone for salvation. These moments count. We're praying now once again that you would warm these hearts, that you would engage these minds, and that you would shape these wills. For again, our Father, we've come here to see Jesus and Him only. <clears throat> and we're praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. Were you watching the Masters last Sunday afternoon? I was. You know, after three morning services, I'm ready for some Masters. And as I was watching the tournament, I was thinking about the founder and the designer of that tournament, Bobby Jones. There's a movie about Bobby Jones. Maybe you've seen it on TV. And one of my friends has a role in that movie, Alistair Begg, a pastor of the church I interned at out in Ohio. He plays Bobby Jones' instructor in the movie. Well, you know, between 1923 and 1930, Bobby Jones entered 20 major championships and won a stunning 13 of them. And he went out on top, retiring from golf at the age of 28 in terms of the championship tours. Astoundingly, he was a lifelong amateur playing golf only in spurts in late teens and 20s while picking up various Ivy League degrees. His most lasting legacy is the Augusta National Golf Course he helped found and design as I shared. And that must have been on the mind of various people that were walking the course, including Tiger Woods. Now I thought about this because in a prior Masters tournament that Woods won, there was a question that was posed to Tiger Woods. He had already won a number of major titles. And in an interview after his victories, Tiger Woods was asked 
what he would say to Bobby Jones if he walked in the room? Good question. Now Tiger Woods thought for a moment and then responded, quote, I would ask him how he came back. If I go out, all I want to know is how to come back. The Ultimate Masters Tournament is on full display on the Via Dolorosa as Jesus Christ made his way toward that cross, dying in our place for our sins, and then three days later being raised from the dead. In this story, you're going to find Thomas recognizing the Ultimate Master and Jesus Christ. My prayer is you'll do the same this morning. What I want to do is to draw out our diagnostic tools this morning. I want to look carefully at, with you at the symptoms of skeptical unbelief in particular, which can come in the form of either religious unbelief or secular unbelief. But whether or not it's religious or secular, there is a skepticism pertaining to unbelief that needs to be explored in these verses. We're going to use our diagnostic tools this morning, and we're going to draw off three major evaluations of the symptoms that are found here. The first found in verses 24 and 25, where in light of Christ's resurrection, I want to first of all notice with you what we'll call the restrictions which unbelieving people, in particular the skeptical unbelieving person, the restrictions, the conditions, the regulations, are placed upon Christ. Now you begin with me in verse 24, don't you? But that's not where John began with Thomas, but that's where we'll begin initially in this verse. Because it seems as though Thomas has been absent when the disciples in that same room one week prior were given opportunity to examine the evidence of the fact that Jesus Christ was no longer in the grave. Jesus is risen. They had seen Jesus. And they wanted to share that excitement now with Thomas. And so Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, evidently Didymus, Thomas, he was the twin. I'd love to have met his twin and understood something about his own spiritual curiosities and where he stood in relationship to Jesus. But he was not with them when Jesus came. Now, if you're like me, you want to know as much as possible about the person that you are evaluating. In this case, the skeptical unbelief of Thomas. Now, the Apostle John has brilliantly utilized Thomas to present the gospel. I believe Thomas is one of the most overlooked people in the gospels. And what he shared in common with the Apostle John is that I believe they were two of the most extraordinarily courageous disciples in the midst of the gatherings of Jesus. Your first encounter with Thomas major encounter would be in chapter 11. We're in chapter 11 of this gospel. Jesus has spoken of his death. 
And rightly so, because in the prior chapter, the Jews had picked up stones to stone him, charging him with blasphemy. He was making a claim to be the equivalent to God. Jesus had spoken of his death in John 11, verse 13. They thought he meant taking, uh, uh, taking rest and sleep. And then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad I was not there, that you may believe. Key word, that you may believe, you see. Already, this idea of believing is at the forefront of anything pertaining to Jesus' relationship to Thomas. And you see it in chapter 11. Before he has raised Lazarus from the dead and explodes Thomas's paradigm of life and death matters. Interestingly, in chapter 11, verse 16... After Jesus said, let us go to him, speaking of Lazarus, Thomas called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, he's the one challenging them now, not Peter. Let us also go. Did you see the plural? In other words, he is now challenging what I would say at this point is the fellowship of death. Let's be courageous enough to go with Jesus to his death. Let's do the Via Dolorosa together. What that tells me thus far is that he is loyal. He is courageous. He understands fellowship. They've given him bad mocks for not being in that room the prior Sunday. Oh, he understands fellowship. To the point where he wanted the rest of them to join him in moving with Jesus to the place of death. Let us also go that we may die with him. Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Thomas's paradigm has now been exploded. He has kept things in a box and Jesus can't be kept in a box. You encounter him again in that upper room of John chapter 14. And Jesus is saying some extraordinary things about going and preparing a place for you. And I'll come again and I'll take you to myself that where I am you will be also. And you know the way where I'm going. But another distinctive of the apostle Thomas is that he was a man who poses questions when nobody else does. While everybody else might be wondering it, he's asking it. Where are you going? What's to draw Jesus out? You see. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. He is very honest with Jesus. Are you? Question. How can we know the way? The Apostle John, who was an extraordinarily courageous man himself, he stood up to the emperor and was banished to the Isle of Patmos, which I, I walked a couple years ago. The Apostle John would have stood in respect for Thomas, and that's why he again positions Thomas strategically to draw Jesus out. And Jesus responded, I am the way 
the truth, and the life. Notice the absolutes. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus could only say that if he would be resurrected from the dead. Thomas is being challenged. So now, Thomas is here on the scene. And as he's on the scene, you're up to verse 25, and the other disciples told him, we have seen, we have seen the Lord. But now what I want you to see at this point is how he responds. I want you to see the restrictions, the stipulations, the conditions that Thomas has placed in reality upon Jesus. You ever done that to Jesus? I'll believe if you do the following. Fill in the blank. You ever done that? Well, in this particular case, notice it begins with the word unless. You ever done that to Jesus? Unless you do this, I will not believe. And so now he explodes with the unlessness of this setting in that room. Unless I see in his hands. Notice we're talking Jesus' hands. Unless we see in his hands, I see in his hands, the mark of the nails. Place my finger. He's very tactical. Tactile, you see. Place my finger into the mark of the nails. But now, to create a sense of equivalency, we've talked about Jesus, hence. John brilliantly then talks about Thomas's hand. And place my hand. This is a two-way street, you see. Jesus' hands, my hand. And place my hand into his side. It doesn't read, I cannot believe, does it? No. Doesn't. Says, I will not believe. So many people try to make this an intellectual issue. This is a willful issue. He's already seen the evidence of resurrection. Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. But by setting these conditions down, laying these stipulations down, he's saying, unless this happens, I will not believe. Not I cannot believe. Meanwhile, the room, the doors are locked. They're trying to keep the enemies out. Is the evil one trying to keep Jesus out? Question. In his drama, The Trial of Jesus, John Maysfield, has the centurion Longinus report to Pilate that the, after the crucifixion of Jesus. And Longinus had been the officer in charge of the execution. And after his official report, Pilate's wife calls the centurion in this drama to come and tell her how the prisoner had died. And once the account's given, she then asks, do you think he's dead? And Longinus answers, no, my lady. I love that phrase. No, my lady. I don't. Then where is he? Let loose in the world, my lady, where neither Roman nor Jew can stop his truth. 
Have you pondered the fact that with that stone in front of the tomb, roughly one ton in weight, rolled into place via an inclined groove, strapped by this encasing rope followed by the seal of the Roman Empire itself, the Roman Emperor, there is a connection between that stone in front of the tomb and the doors which are locked. There seems to be no sense of getting in, getting out, getting in, getting out, you see. But have you considered the way that God sovereignly overcomes these obstacles? What obstacles are you putting in front of God this morning? What conditions are you setting before him? Now, it seems as though Thomas at this point is very hand conscious. He wants to explore Jesus' hands. He wants to utilize his hand. Paul Brand was a surgeon, a surgeon in India, a surgeon in India who specialized in working with hands. He was also a gifted communicator and would use medical illustrations to communicate biblical truths. His biographer tells us that on a particular day where Bran had been up all night doing surgeries, he then had to stand before a congregation of leprosy patients where he would have to communicate the gospel. The biographer tells us to all of these people he was a beloved physician and it was always at their request that before he left, he speaks some words and encouragement and share the gospel. And so on this particular day, he was exhausted. He said, I was empty of ideas. But he knew he had to come up with something. As he rose to his feet, he became suddenly conscious of his hands. Their hands. All kinds of hands. Some raised palm to palm in the gesture familiar in that setting of India. Some arched in the shape of claws. Some with all five fingers. Some with no fingers due to leprosy. Some with a few stumps. Some half hidden to cover their disfigurement. But it was a congregation of hands. And so the biographer goes on to tell us, Brand began simply by reminding them that he was a hand surgeon. When I meet people, I can't help looking at their hands. I can tell what your trade has been by the position of the calluses, the conditions of the nails. I can tell a lot about one's character. I love hands. From that he moved into a teaching about Jesus and his relationship to Thomas and began to explain to them, ponder the significance of the nail print hands, evaluate the evidence of the resurrected Savior, and then beginning with his boyhood and continuing on through his years as a carpenter, as a teacher, as a physician, and finally as the crucified Lord, he communicated the shared life and ministry of Jesus onwards to resurrection through the usage of hands.
unless I place my hand into his side. Thomas doesn't say, I cannot believe. No. Laying down the regulations and restrictions, he says, I will never believe. A negative absolute. Now, who in your life right now you're so burdened for? This is uh, perhaps a religiously skeptic unbeliever, maybe a secularized skeptic unbeliever, but what they share in common is unbelief. And you are so burdened. How do you penetrate that sense of unbelief at this point? You don't. God does. And he allows this truth to explode. In Sri Lanka, in the last 24 hours, it seems though churches are in the midst of experiencing explosions while the evil one is trying to keep the gospel hindered. But even when the doors are locked, Jesus gets in. In light of Christ's resurrection, you note first of all with me the restrictions with this form of an unbeliever, the skeptical unbeliever, religious or secular, placed upon Christ. But now second of all, I want you to consider with me the transformation which unbelieving people need through Christ. They don't need merely information. You've got to move from, as I've penned in your insert this morning, the historical fact and examine the evidential reality until you embrace the transformational effect. We're not to leave here this morning with simply being biblically informed. We are to be spiritually transformed. Is this been your experience with Jesus? It's eight days later. Time goes on. And maybe your burden for somebody in your circle of relationships, and time has gone on. And you long for them to be part of the fellowship of life, but thus far it seems to be nothing more than the fellowship of death. Don't give up. Jesus has a way of penetrating locked doors, you know. Just like Jesus has a way of getting beyond one-ton stone elements in front of tombs. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again. God in his sovereignty had kept Thomas away the first go-around. Because I believe God in his sovereignty wanted Thomas to put an exclamation point to the Gospel of John in the second go-around. This time Thomas is with them. You're with me now, in verse 26. Now to reiterate the significance of the regulations, the restrictions in it all, these doors are locked. And although the doors were locked, John says, rather matter-of-factly, Jesus came, stood among them. Now, if you know Jesus, he probably had a half smile on his face at this point. You thought you could keep me up? And Jesus came, 
stood among them. Notice what he said. Peace be with you. They need a sense of shalom. Making our way from the airport in Tel Aviv to the hotel, I was fascinated by what the taxi driver was listening to on radio. Time and time again, and I'm always interested in music that's being played in the in the contemporary realm because it gives uh, it gives an indicator of the cultural mood. Main theme was peace. All the songs being played one after another had some topic, some theme associated with peace. As we were making our way towards the hotel in Tel Aviv, I, I thought of that moment in the past. May 14th, 1948, State of Israel is established. We talk a lot about that on Sunday mornings, don't we? Well, the very next day, Israel went to war with its Arab neighbors. Four wars, 45 years later, September 13th, 1993, an extraordinary moment, I can still see it. Two bitter and long-standing enemies, Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin and the PLO Chairman Yasser Arafat signed a peace accord on the White House lawn. Bill Clinton, standing there in the middle, initiated the journey towards what would thought to have been some kind of nonviolent coexistence. But you and I know that peace comes slowly. And the most astounding thing would happen to disrupt the peace process. The unthinkable Prime Minister Rabin, known throughout the region as the soldier of Shalom, quote unquote, was assassinated by an Israeli on November 4th, 1995, while leaving a peace rally in Tel Aviv. One of the strategic military leaders at that time was being interviewed subsequent to the event. I'm not sure if this piece is good or not, he commented. But I do know one thing. We tried to win in so many wars, and in the end, we were at the same place where we started. Let's give this piece a chance. We need to give peace a chance. Thomas, shalom. You ready to give peace a chance? In the midst of your brokenness, you ready for some wholeness? How about you? In the midst of your brokenness this morning, you ready for some wholeness? Some shalom? In order to experience peace from God, there must first of all be peace with God. That comes at the cross of Jesus Christ where he died in our place for our sins. 
peace with God. Peace from God. Shalom. Now I think, I think Jesus must have had some kind of audio connection, don't you? He must have been listening in to the words of Thomas. Because he directs his gaze not at Peter, not at James, not at John. And this is an extraordinary, astounding moment. There in this locked room, he says to Thomas, put your finger here. Now he gets visual. He combines the tactile and the visual. See my hands. But he knows that Thomas was arguing for a two-way street. There was something to be said about Jesus' hands, but there was also something said about Thomas's hand. Jesus doesn't go halfway. Jesus, completely knowledgeable and sovereign over the situation, goes on to say, and put out your hand. Place it in my side. And then the most amazing thing emerges out of all this. Jesus then says, Do not disbelieve, but believe. Now, the Gospel of John is a gospel that addresses the whole matter of belief. And God sovereignly kept Thomas out of that room so that Thomas would have to be able to offer all of those who are skeptics the opportunity to reevaluate their paradigms as to who Christ is and what Christ has done. That he is more than a great teacher. He led more than a great life. That Jesus Christ is Savior and Lord. And so he picks up the whole matter of the hand imagery again. Off to the side in my office is a shelf full of medical books. There's a volume called A Life in Medicine. And there is a particular chapter written by Hart Crane. It's entitled Episode of Hands, which poetically describes a physician addressing the nature and the woundedness and the brokenness of a factory owner's son's hand. And as the fingers of the factory owner's son, they knew a grip for books and tennis as was for iron and leather as his taut spare fingers wound the gauze around the thick bed of the wound. His own hands seemed to him like wings of butterflies flickering in sunlight over summer fields. Ah, the knots, notches, many in the wide and deep hand that lay in his seemed beautiful. They were like the mocks of wild ponies at play, bunches of new green breaking a hard turf, and factory sounds and factory thoughts were banished from him by that larger, quieter hand that lay in his with the sun upon it. And here's the physician using his hands to wrap the wounds of the factory worker's hands. And as the bandaged knot was tightened, the two men lifted their eyes 
from the hands and smiled into each other's eyes. Can you imagine Thomas and Jesus hand in hand, eye to eye? What do you do with a scenario like this? Where it seems as though Jesus had some kind of live, live feed. He knew what Thomas said. And then challenges his willingness with do not disbelieve, but believe. And how do you respond when you come across things like that? Thomas answered him, and we've captured it in the, in the English translations. My Lord. Notice the my. It gets repeated. My God. Which is an astounding thing for a Jew to say because the Jews knew their Shema. And the Shema of the Old Testament would point blank inform us. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And now he is referring to Jesus Christ as my Lord, my God. Dorothy Sayers. Dorothy Sayers, who in 1943 created a series of dramatic readings from the life of Christ for broadcasts on the British Broadcasting system. Her work is published under the title, The Man Born to be King, and for each of the plays, and you ought to read them, Sayers offers notes on the characters and the way that they're to be read. But when she gets to this about Thomas, she says, quote, It is unexpected, but extraordinarily convincing, that the one absolutely unequivocal statement in the gospel regarding the divinity of Jesus, should come from Thomas. This is Dorothy Sayers speaking, I'm quoting from. And we go on to say that this must be said, not ecstatically or with a cry of astonishment, but with a flat conviction, but now her personality is coming across, as of acknowledging the irrefutable evidence, two plus two equals four. Or that the sun is in the sky. You are my Lord. My God. Thomas is coming to grips with things. Jesus said to him, Have you believed? Jesus is not going to let him off the hook. He doesn't do that with you or me. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Thomas posed questions in that upper room. Now Jesus has got a question for Thomas. Jesus has a way of doing that, you know. But then he offers an extraordinary beatitude. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Which now leads you to the third of the three diagnostics. 
That thirdly, in light of Christ's resurrection, note with me the scriptures which unbelieving people should examine about Christ because he draws us now to answer that question, but I can't see Jesus, so what do I do? And he's saying, examine the evidence that's found in God's word. The irrefutable evidence found in the reliability of the scriptural accounts. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But what then is the purpose of all this? These are written so that you may believe. He's talking to you, he's talking to me, he's saying get into the scriptures, examine them from Genesis onwards, 66 books, digest them, so that you would do what? Believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and then for reiteration, by believing, you may have life in his name. I can just see him looking at Thomas at this point. As Thomas is being shifted from the culture of death to the culture of life, from the fellowship of death to the fellowship of life, examine the evidence. And as you do so, and do what we do each Easter, ponder these questions I typically pose. If we set this scenario up, if Jesus had remained dead, then number one, how do we explain the testimony of his followers? And number two, if Jesus had remained dead, how do we explain the empty tomb? Who had vested interest in keeping and making that tomb empty? Uh, the fearful disciples? Of course not. They won't even get out of this room. And the soldiers, they would die. Because they were set up to protect that tomb. The religious opponents, they want to keep that body in the grave. How do we explain why 500 people say they saw him? How do we explain the credibility of the witnesses? How do we explain the inability of the opposition to refute the claims? And how do we explain the transformed life of his followers as they move from fear to faith? And when you examine the scriptures, ponder that because of the resurrection, we are able to say there is a God who is sovereign over life and death. There is a God who establishes the claims of Jesus Christ. There is a God that establishes that all who believe in Christ are justified on the basis of faith. And that proof exists that death is not the end of life. Our sister Kathy Balky would say that to you right now. There's evidence someday we will stand before God that infuses courage into your soul. Which is why Peggy Noonan would be able to point out that when he was Vice President George Bush representing the U.S. at the funeral of the former Soviet leader Leonid Brezhnev was deeply moved, she writes, by a silent protest carried out by the Soviet Union, that atheistic Soviet Union's leader's widow, where she stood motionless by the coffin until seconds before it was closed. And then, just as the soldiers touched the lid, Brezhnev's wife, performed an extraordinary act of great courage and hope. A gesture 
that ranks as one of the most profound acts of civil disobedience ever committed. She reached down, made the sign of the cross on her husband's chest. She was saying, our beliefs are wrong. Jesus Christ is right. This is not informational. This is transformational. Ponder the restrictions. Ponder the transformation. Ponder the scriptures. And as a result of all this, you're able, trans, as a transformed person, to be able to say within a heartfelt sense of conviction, He is risen. And so, Father, as the musicians come forward now to lead us in a closing song of worship, we're giving you praise, honor, and glory. The tomb is empty. Christ is risen. Valid faith is found in putting faith exclusively in Jesus, the resurrected one for salvation alone. And for this we give you all the glory. In Jesus' name. Amen.